Massive outbreak of salmonella has killed five Canadians. The RCMP has arrested two men with terror charges for being involved in the Atomwaffen division. Bill 15 passes in Quebec, which will trigger another massive reorganization of the healthcare system. The body of a man in Alabama who died in state custody is returned to his family, except his heart is missing. And the WHO is the first UN agency that has called for a ceasefire in Gaza. Officials there hope that this is the start of the UN actually doing something. Good morning. It's Monday, December 11th. I'm Nora, and here are your headlines. We start with news that I think should be like the biggest national news right now, but somehow I've only seen it shared once by the Globe and Mail's Andre Picard on Twitter. It tells me that Canadians have become far too used to death related to outbreaks, and I guess we can probably thank COVID for that. CBC News' Rihanna Schmunk is reporting that a major outbreak of salmonella across Canada has killed five people as of Thursday. An additional three people have died in the United States. That information has come from Public Health Agency of Canada, and Schmunk said that they released no further details about the death toll. 44 people have ended up in hospital. The salmonella was in cantaloupe that was sold across Canada. Many of the patients who've been poisoned were children in daycare and seniors in long-term care. Folks, I guess, who are forced to eat cantaloupe because cantaloupe's actually disgusting. April Hexamer from the Public Health Agency of Canada said this, quote, this is more cases than what we would normally see in a salmonella outbreak investigation, unquote. She isn't quoted as telling us what the Public Health Agency of Canada considers a normal salmonella outbreak. The outbreak, as I say, is not limited to Canada. It's poisoned hundreds of people in the United States as well. The cantaloupe is being sold by brands Malachita or Rudy and would have been purchased in October and November. If you do have any of those on hand, you should be throwing them out. Cases are highest in Quebec. 91 infections confirmed as of Thursday, which is nearly triple the week before. There are 17 cases in Ontario, 15 in New Brunswick, and two each in Atlantic Canadian provinces minus Nova Scotia. Half of the folks infected were over 65. One adult was 100 years old. And there have been some babies less than one year old also infected. Honeydew, pineapple, watermelon, and assorted trays sold by the same two brands are also under recall. If you have those items, also throw those out. Dr. Isaac Bogosh from the Toronto General Hospital guessed that the salmonella probably came from the soil of the ground where the cantaloupes were grown, likely contaminated with animal feces. While we probably won't hear a follow-up about the farm conditions that led to this outbreak, it is crucial that someone follow up with some questions. The farms are located in Mexico. Are the workers poorly treated? Is the soil contaminated? Is Canada's Food Inspection Agency watching this company closely to stop any future or ongoing outbreaks? What did the Canadian Food Inspection Agency do in this situation? Should they have caught this before it was sold? Uh, There's a lot of questions that uh, I'll be looking to see if we get answers to. Next up, the RCMP has charged two men with terrorism charges for their activities with the Atomwaffen Division. This violent far-right white supremacist organization was deemed a terrorist entity by the federal government, and after an 18-month investigation in both Toronto and Niagara, they've arrested two men. 
Police found that they were promoting Adam Waffen and another group called the Active Club Canada. That group has been doing active combat training in parks. By the way, imagine randomly coming across that as you walked your dog. They say that the Active Club Canada has ties to the neo-Nazi group the Hammerskins in Durham. The RCMP posted a photo of the group and kindly blurred out everyone's faces. The RCMP also doesn't name the two men who were arrested for some reason, even though their first court date was last week. The CTV News report from Abby O'Brien is sole-sourced from the RCMP and doesn't explain why the two individuals were not named. It also doesn't explain why there were only two arrests when the RCMP shared evidence of more than a dozen of these trash men in this photo posing with two neo-Nazi flags. The report from CTV is really just the RCMP press release, and so you're better to just read it from the source directly. Now to Quebec, where Bill 15, a massive health care reform bill, has been adopted. The government forced the vote, which happened at 5.15 a.m. on Saturday, with 75 votes in favor and 27 against. That basically means that the CAC was in favor and the opposition was opposed. They then adjourned until January 30th. The bill will create something called Santé Québec, which will centralize a lot of our healthcare system. Minister Christian Dubé said that the reforms will make it easier to see a specialist and allow people to go to a hospital regardless of their postal code. That's how CBC News explains it. But as someone who's lived here for 11 years, and I guess I've never gone to a hospital outside of my own city, I have no idea what that actually means. There are almost 1,200 articles in the bill, something that made it, as CBC called it, quote, one of the most imposing bills in Quebec history, unquote. The reforms will integrate the SUS and the CISSs, agencies that were created by the last major reform under the Liberals, which was not that long ago. I think, what, seven years, five years? My God. It will make Santé Québec the province's sole employer in the healthcare system. Workers will be merged into a single entity and there will be a single seniority list. The unions, who are currently on strike through the Francomen, are pissed. They see the changes as further privatizing our already very private system. Meanwhile, the province refused to negotiate with the Francomen over the past weekend. It's something that has frustrated the unions. It must be noted that every single time there's a reform to merge units, there is an even greater loss of local control and local autonomy to meet the local needs of a community in a health setting. Bosses become invisible or even more invisible. Workers are drilled further into the ground and no one needs to take accountability because the network is so big and so complex that problems fester and turn into massive issues. So as someone who has just found out that I'm losing my doctor because of a personal leave of absence, this doesn't exactly fill me with much confidence. There will be fewer labs, fewer centers for services and more quote unquote efficiencies across the entire system that will absolutely make healthcare worse in the province. And as things are getting worse, of course, there will be more private clinics popping up to pick up the slack. That's how this will work. The private clinics, they will have local leadership. They will be locally controlled. They will not be burdened by these massive bureaucracies, and therefore, they will be more efficient. It's a wonder that the CAC plowed ahead with these reforms without allowing more debate. The Liberals' massive reforms from a few years ago are the stench that endures from their long tenure in this province, and there's little doubt that the same thing will be true for the CAC. I guess all we can do is brace ourselves and support the workers. I'll also just note in this article, it's very classic, that it's got the order of comment like this. The Parti Québécois, followed by the Liberals, followed by Québec Solidaire, even though if you're going to do it by order 
order of seat, it would have been Liberals, Quebec Solidaire, and then the Parti Québécois. But I guess it's by, I don't know, voting intention based on the polls. CBC never misses a chance to make sure that Quebec Solidaire is buried at the end of every article. Next to Alabama, where the Birmingham News is reporting that Brandon Clay Dotson's body was returned to his family without his heart inside of it. Dodson died at the Ventress Correctional Facility on November 16th. Reporter Ivana Harinkiu explains that it was not, quote-unquote, immediately clear why he was in jail in the first place. Dotson was trying to get help from prison workers, saying that his safety was threatened over unpaid drug debts. By the time they found him dead in his bed, the 43-year-old's body was already stiffening. The family received his body five days later. By then, it was, quote-unquote, severely decomposed. Because of the state correctional department's, quote, extensive and ongoing violations of basic human and constitutional rights, unquote, the family sought out their own autopsy. It was then that the pathologist, Dr. Boris Datnow, found that his heart had been removed. In a lawsuit, Dotson's family alleges, quote, the Alabama Department of Corrections or an agent responsible for conducting the autopsy or transporting the body to his family had inexplicably and without the required permission from Mr. Dotson's next of kin removed and retained Mr. Dotson's heart, unquote. The family is calling for his heart to be immediately returned. Now, where this gets especially grim is that the family has a hunch that his heart was sent to the University of Alabama at Birmingham's School of Medicine. In 2018, medical students identified that they were receiving an odd number of body parts from people who had died in the custody of the Alabama Department of Corrections. The university has said that they hadn't received it. And finally, the world continues to watch and do not much as things get worse and worse every day in Gaza. Al Jazeera is reporting that the World Health Organization is the first UN agency to agree on a resolution that calls for the immediate access to humanitarian aid in Gaza and an end to the fighting. The motion was passed by consensus on Sunday by the special session of the executive board of the WHO. The WHO has only had seven special meetings in its 75-year history, which does beg many questions considering the pandemic that we've all lived through for three years. But anyway... At least 18,000 people have been killed in Gaza, and the UN says about 80% of the population has been displaced. There are water and food shortages, and diseases remain a constant threat. A motion for a ceasefire put forward by the United Arab Emirates and co-sponsored with 100 other countries failed at the UN Security Council last week because the United States vetoed it. Tomorrow, the General Assembly should be voting on a ceasefire resolution, quote, after Egypt and Mauritania invoked Resolution 377, uniting for peace in the wake of the U.S. veto, unquote. That resolution allows the General Assembly to act when the Security Council fails to, quote, exercise its primary responsibility for the maintenance of international peace and security, unquote. Of course, we should keep our eyes on how Canada votes if that resolution hits the floor tomorrow. Those are your headlines for Monday, December 11th. I'm Nora. You're listening to this podcast at sandyandnora.com on the Real News Network podcast feed or anywhere you get your podcasts. I hope you'll have a wonderful Monday and I'll talk to you tomorrow.